0: This is the Get Healthy 360 podcast, where we discuss topics related to your physical, mental, psychological, and spiritual health. Your host is Dr. Chris Ferguson, board certified in anesthesiology and pain management. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and you should consult your primary healthcare provider before making any decisions related to your health. And
1: here's your host, Dr. Chris Ferguson. Today we have with us Dr. Nicole Nugent, so she is an associate professor at Brown University. She specializes in childhood trauma and dealing with childhood trauma. We're going to post her CV on the show notes. Her CV is incredibly impressive. She has a ridiculous number of publications. She's also authored textbooks and chapters, and she has national funding to deal with trauma in children, correct me if I'm wrong, Dr. Nugent, but trauma in children and how to deal with that trauma and how to make them happier, more productive adults. She also deals with childhood suicide issues and, again, how to deal with that. Perfect. It's a great description. All right. So today what we're going to talk about sources of childhood trauma. And there are a lot of them, which is a very sad topic, but yeah. acknowledging it, I think, and recognizing it is important. Then we'll talk about the outcomes of childhood trauma and how that affects someone as an adult. But then on a positive note, we're going to talk about all the things that a parent can do to help their children if they're going through something difficult. And then as an adult, how can you help yourself or also if you have a significant other things that you can do as well. So Perfect. thank you very much for joining. Thank you.
0: Would it be helpful for me to maybe start talking a little bit about when we think about what those childhood experiences might be? Sound good?
1: That would be fantastic.
0: (laughs) All right. When we think about kind of this range of childhood experiences, a lot of times what people think first about are things like child abuse and neglect. And that's completely appropriate so when we're thinking about kids who are exposed to physical abuse sexual abuse kids who are exposed to levels of neglect where let's say a parent has kind of left them alone to fend for themselves for food or for clothes levels of even observing other negative interactions so for example domestic violence growing up with that is really frightening for children a lot of times people assume that think about things like neglect or if we think about even emotional abuse people sort of assume that oh that It's not as bad as something like physical or sexual abuse, but there's actually a really strong literature to suggest that those emotional abuse experiences are really harmful in the long term. It can be easy to kind of say, well, as long as your physical safety was not in danger, that isn't going to affect you, but actually we know for sure that it does. And then when you think about for some kids, this multiplying out of different abuses. So we know that for kids who experience multiple types of abuse, so like let's say a kid who experienced physical and sexual abuse or neglect and or sexual abuse, the negative outcomes kind of multiply out. And especially once you hit this threshold of three to four types of trauma, after that, we see really it's much, much harder for kids to kind of adjust and cope with things. Other types of adverse experiences are the death of a parent, witnessing some kind of a murder, certainly things like war. So all of the kind of bad things that we think about that could happen, those would fall under this heading. And then when we think about those bad things that can happen, what's going to be the long term outcome? Um, so that's always what parents worry about, what community members worry about, is how can we predict who's going to struggle? And also, how can we mitigate that risk? How can we make sure that we keep our kids, you know, bad things happen? That's just the reality, unfortunately. How do we help kids when bad things happen to be resilient to that stress and to that trauma? And then also that piece, as you pointed out, which is for people who now are adults and still find themselves thinking about it or who maybe don't even realize the ways that it's affected them, how can they continue to
1: move forward in a way that they can be resilient. So you were talking about some very traumatic things like sexual abuse, physical violence in the home. But what about the more subtle things like can you expand on that because you alluded to it with emotional abuse or emotional neglect of a child and how that's damaging?
0: researchers have tried to look at, for example, very explicitly trying to compare emotional abuse versus, let's say, sexual abuse. Again, the assumption has always been, well, it's worse to be sexually abused. But actually, the literature really doesn't support that, that if you have experienced emotional abuse, just constantly being called names or being told how horrible you are, being neglected, those things have negative impacts. And the way that I'm talking about it right now is much more kind of thinking about caregivers. But actually, we have some recent research that myself and some colleagues here through Hasbro Children's Hospital have looked at where we've actually looked at cyberbullying and different types of interpersonal bullying. And we actually see that kids have much higher risk for PTSD or even for suicidal thoughts and behaviors after cyberbullying than we ever would have predicted. And even just those experiences that kids will come home to their parents and say, this person is being mean to me, easy to dismiss because an adult we think, oh, well, just ignore them or it's no big deal. But actually, it's incredibly harmful and difficult for kids, especially to the degree that technology has been incorporated. Kids have told me um, in my clinical work about other classmates taking videos. Videos of them using that to bully them through texting or social media.
1: I have a podcast with a pediatric ER specialist, and she was talking about how kids will use social media and will bully people to the to the point where they'll actually commit suicide because the bullying yeah. is super intense.
0: Unfortunately, yeah, we've definitely seen that. There's lots of examples of even litigation happening right now about that. Lots of high profile cases too, but even ones that just don't make it into the media that that's the case. And I've certainly, again, in my clinical practice, seen that happen a lot. We are starting to look at it in one of the studies that I have. There's also this process, for example, around social media potentially being positive, right? After you have a trauma, so if I get in a horrible car accident, which would be an adverse childhood experience. Then I post to my Instagram account or whatever it is, a picture of my broken leg or my cast or something like that, now there's this potential that all these people who are my friends through Instagram now can reach out to me. And pilot data, that's exactly what we found, is that we found lots of teenagers actually are able to garner a ton of rapid social support by just doing something like that. And then all of a sudden, there are tons of people who want to help or who are provide social emotional support or provide, you know, I'll come pick stuff up for you. So things that sometimes we think of as being negative still may have a role. Um, even another good example in this study that I'm doing right now for kids admitted to the emergency department, we have found some of the kids We often think about, like for example, doing a lot of video gaming is a negative thing. Well, if you're injured and you can still video game with these video games where you're actually with your friends and you can talk to them remotely, now you still have a chance to have that social support in a way that maybe you couldn't have before. You couldn't have because of your injury, at least during the time that you're healing. I just think it's a complicated, like so many pieces of advice that we might give family members in terms of helping to support someone when they recover as they're facing a trauma, it's very nuanced. And I think sometimes there's this temptation to say, no iPhone or no phone, no screen time, whatever. But it's more complicated than that because sometimes it is harmful, but sometimes it can be a space for getting social support.
1: And I really appreciate your nuanced view of social media, because with all things, there's always a positive and a negative to things. And you mentioned some very useful and positive things about social media. Can you comment on I see this very commonly in my medical practice and in my day to day life is it's obvious when a kid is going to go through trauma, like say they're separated at the border, or they have childhood, like parents are beating their kids, like abuse is very obvious. And objectively, everyone can say that is abuse. However, comment on the more subtle forms of abuse, like a parent just being emotionally distant from a child or say parents are divorcing and they're just not handling that emotional situation the best. Or what if the home life is really good? And there just happens to be, say, a teacher at school who tells their kid, well, your desk is messy, so you'll never amount to anything. Because those things can be very scarring as well, but they're more subtle and I think they could be damaging, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's hard to really pin it down as abuse.
0: And I think that you're exactly right. And I think that what can be hard for providers and for the kids as well is that it may be, I have had kids where the parents are saying things that are just completely devastating to the children, have harmed them in ways that kind of go right to the core of their sense of who they are, but there's nothing to report. And there are things that I can do from a family therapy approach that are really important. So in those cases, once kids are engaged in care, there are lots of opportunities. So there are opportunities for me as a clinician to always just be pulling those parents back in and trying to get them to interact with their child in a healthier way. Even when there's a teacher that's abusive, I can go to the school, I can talk with the school about this particular teacher's behavior. And if the teacher's not able to adjust their behavior in a way that's appropriate for the child, I've actually genuinely had kids switch schools and seen that those symptoms that were related to this abuse they were experiencing at the school actually went away. As a clinician, I know that running away from your problems is bad. (laughs) So we know that avoidance is probably one of the worst things that you can do whenever something is happening in your life that's complicated or difficult. But when it comes to, especially for kids, a social context that's so incredibly negative, that kid can't really, their development gets paused, their kind of emotional and social well-being is so harmed. Sometimes really just helping them be in a new setting is the best thing for them.
1: I know I'm really hammering down on this particular topic of the subtle things, but I would imagine that most parents think they're doing the best thing ever. I'd appreciate your thoughts on, say, the parent who says or who makes their child feel like they have to excel at sports. And from the parent standpoint, they're trying to impart positive values, but they really make the child feel that the only reason parent will give them any sort of affection or support is if they Mm. are the star of, say, their football team or basketball team or whatever team they happen to be on.
0: What you're kind of asking is like, when is that just not great parenting? Yes. And when is that actually like
1: almost abuse? Yes.
0: That is a tough one. <laughs> I mean, for sure, it's not going to be falling in that well, horrible realm. You you,
1: you're the psychologist, that's why I'm
0: right? You. But you're absolutely right that it is harmful. I always think about how is this comes down to anything. I think in life, the question that I always ask is: Is this impairing? Is this negatively affecting this kid's life? And when you think about kids, think about adults. What that means is: Can I get up in the morning and go to my job? Can I have healthy social relationships with my family? Members and friends, and my coworkers. Like, those are the kind of ways that we judge whether or not someone's being impaired. But when it comes to kids, you have to layer into that. This developmental process. That makes it, I think, much more tricky because what we're now impairing is not just did I show up to class at school or not, it's also am I developing in a way that making the most of who I could become. A lot of that is sort of subjective and hard for parents to assess or hard for others to assess. But I would say a lot of times I mentioned earlier that I'm very interested in thinking about how biology interacts with influences our experience experiences and is influenced by our experiences, which is like toxic stress and physical health outcomes kind of stuff. I was talking at one point with a colleague about, I'm really interested in epigenetics and genetics and blah, blah, blah. And, And the person said to me, Don't you just want to ask somebody if they're feeling down? And I think that that's the answer, which is that the only one who can tell us if this kid is being harmed by it is the kid. So I think it's really important for parents to ask that question and to really listen and be present for the answer. Because if you don't ask, if you don't open up a space where your kid can tell you that they don't really want to do this sport you'll never know. And you'll never know that you're potentially harming them. I am myself a parent and I get it that like there's this fine line, right? Because your kid might one day say, oh, I don't feel like going to soccer or whatever. And then they get there and they love it. And you as a parent sort of know that I just have to push this kid to show up and then he's going to love it. So it's sort of a matter of having enough of an ongoing open conversation with your child to figure it out. And then the other layer of it is your kid could totally say to you, I don't want to go to soccer anymore. It's actually not about soccer. It's about like, kid on the soccer team is bullying them. And so again, this comes back to this point of trying to create a relationship with your child where they can be open about this information with you. When we look broadly at the adverse childhood experience kinds of stuff, when we look at trauma, even when we look at kind of softer stuff like low socioeconomic status growing up in poverty, the things that really are the most powerful in terms of decreasing those negative effects are having an adult, sometimes also peers, but having positive social relationships in your life, who could help to mitigate that? Who can be there for you? That is kind of where I come back to this. Like we have to ask the kid. like someone, and maybe it's not the parent. Certainly we've got lots of literature around sometimes that person is a babysitter or a neighbor or a teacher. but there needs to be someone that is asking the kid and that is helping them to either the parents to navigate this more appropriately or for the kid to find ways to say in an effective way, "You know, I really don't want to do this. It's this not for me.
1: For anyone who's not familiar, what exactly is epigenetics?
0: You know, I have a colleague who wrote this really great article called How Stress Gets Into the Body. Epigenetics, I think about it, certainly I think most people are familiar with genetics. So we think about the genome and, and we inherit our genes from our moms and our dads. Those genes we know have a big impact on what we look like, our risk for diabetes or all of these sorts of things. Epigenetics are actually this thing that impact the way that your genes go from being genes to these other outcomes like diabetes let's say. So I think about it like if you imagine that your genes are a like long string and I think of it like a wad of bubble gum stuck on the string. Then when you're going along and your body's sort of translating the information that's on your gene into all these other different parts of your body, like again, your risk for diabetes or for cancer or whatever it might be, this wad of bubble gum is kind of stopping you from being able to access that part of your gene. And that wad of bubble gum can change as a function of lots of different things. So in the beginning, a lot of the epigenetics research was with cancer? So for example, being outside in the sun, especially if you're fair, you increase the some damage to your genes. And this is kind of where people will talk about oxidative stress or other kinds of like damage to your genes. And then that can put you at risk for, let's say, skin cancer, for example, to make it really basic. And so, but one of the things that has been really exciting is in the last 15 or so years, we've come to realize it's not just the physical exposures, it's not just smoking or going outside in the sun that's Causing changes to this epigenome are these like wads of bubblegum, but it's actually also these social and personal experiences. So experiencing a trauma certainly we know that it has, especially for kids, an impact on our genome, on our epigenomic processes. The research that's looked at these epigenetic kinds of marks is what we call them, those bubblegum wads or sort of think about those as epigenetic marks. What we've started to see is that especially with childhood trauma and childhood stress, it seems that the parts of the genome that are most affected by that stress is really our immune system and then also some parts of our stress system, which if you think about it, it makes kind of a lot of sense that your stress system would be impacted by kind of some people talk about it like early childhood programming, right? You've experienced something bad and your biology is getting programmed to be ready for a world that's bad, sort of like forecasting the future. Which is a fascinating um,
1: way to think about your genes, that what, you, what happens to your parents really impacts the children. So said another way, if the mom is stressed out or the dad's stressed out and then say the baby from the time it was conceived is exposed to all these stressful hormones and lack of food, what have you. And then as the child is born, the stress that they're feeling actually affects not only them, but their future offspring.
0: Exactly, that that can happen again when they're five years old or six years old, that that those epigenetic marks can also be kind of worsened or it can be like a cumulative effect of things that happen while your mom was pregnant with you or while you were a baby. And then again, when you're a little bit older,
1: for what you're saying then is your individual genetics as well as your environment interact to determine what kind of adult you will be, meaning what kind of psychological profile, your immune system, meaning your predisposition to cancer, your predisposition to be overweight, your predisposition to high blood pressure, all of those things come into play. It's not just a strictly a matter of how you're raised, but it's the interplay between how you're raised and your individual genetic makeup.
0: Exactly. I think a lot of times people who aren't used to thinking about genetics kind of feel like, oh, I don't, nobody wants to have this message of, oh, I was programmed to be this way. Like it's all in the genes. Because the reality is that we actually have a lot of nice literature to support that really not matter, an epigenetics are an example of this, it's really not just a matter of what you inherited from your mom and dad biologically. And also that a lot of times we focus on the negative stuff like stress and trauma or really like high levels of poverty or all these other things that we know can be bad effects. But there've actually been, wonderfully, an increase in studies where people are actually looking at, can we have positive impacts? So when people participate in cognitive behavioral therapy, for example, which is a common treatment
1: for stress-related concerns like anxiety disorders or PTSD can you clarify exactly what is cognitive behavioral therapy and how it's used
0: one of probably the most widely used kind of psychological or behavioral intervention that we have out there across all of the mental health concerns for the most part and across kids and adults is cognitive behavioral therapy. And there are lots of versions of cognitive behavioral therapy. So you might even hear people talking about things like mindfulness interventions or dialectical behavioral therapy or other types of therapy, but they all kind of have a component at least of cognitive behavioral therapy. And that intervention assumes that there's a connection between our thought, our behaviors, and our actions. The assumption is that if I, as a clinician, can help somebody to change any one of those three things, that the others will follow. And we've seen lots of great research to suggest that it's a reasonable thing to believe in I think something that's really important to keep in mind is if you do suspect that your kid or even if you've been through something difficult in your lifetime that going in and seeing a psychologist who can do something like cognitive behavioral therapy for you with you will be so helpful for kind of managing a whole host of things that can be outcomes of trauma. And so for example, in cognitive behavioral therapy, you could imagine there are lots of like automatic thoughts that someone might hear have. And so you Might automatically think to yourself, let's say your buddy, let's say you were in the military and your buddy was killed because you stepped away to use the restroom or something like that and you came back and your buddy was killed. And then an automatic thought could be, it was my fault. I never should have stepped away. I'm the reason he's dead. So then cognitive behavioral therapy would be to sort of think about can we challenge that thought? How can we change the way that you think? Because as you might imagine, if you're thinking to yourself, it's my fault that my friend is dead. Now, you're going to feel horrible. You're going to do things to cope with feeling horrible that are not going to be happy or healthy for you. You're going to have a hard time getting close to a new friend. You're going to always sort of feel
1: like this thing is hanging over you. Here's a more subtle, to tie this back into childhood trauma, what are your thoughts on this? So say there's a parent that tells their child, say the child is having friends or they're dating someone, they say, well, you should be lucky that you have friends because no one will probably ever like you. Or say they're dating and then a parent tells their child, well, you better be really good to this, your significant other at this time or your boyfriend or girlfriend, because this is the best that you'll ever do. And then this person grows up to feel that really they're not that lovable or likable. Now, this is a core belief that they have. How would you go about treating that?
0: I think the other thing that's so beautiful about cognitive behavioral therapy is that both of these examples that you and I just had are very cognitively driven, right? But you have a conversation with someone where you sort of change their perspective on things. You would, as a part of cognitive behavioral therapy, the clinician would have this whole host of like strategies that they're using with that person. A common one that I will use is most of us have a really hard time excusing ourselves for things that we would excuse others for. That's the example you just gave, I'll have somebody say like, tell me a friend around that same age about them. I'll get them to like really think about that friend. And then I'll say, what do you think? Do you think that that person is unlovable or unlikable or similarly I'll have people who feel again like let's say they've been sexually abused growing up where they feel like it was their fault they were getting candy and so then they sought out that relationship because they were getting something out of it not understanding this bigger picture that they were being sexually abused and they're sort of blaming themselves now and so then I'll have conversations again about like well think about your seven-year-old cousin if this were to happen to her do you think it would be her fault and all of a sudden the rules change. So I think sometimes giving people a little bit of distance is one way, sometimes just teaching them the tools and helping them recognize the patterns that are affecting them, those can be helpful. There's also people will have people do like a thought records in their day-to-day life. They might experience something bad that happens and they notice this automatic thought like I just thought immediately like this is my fault or I'm a horrible person or I don't deserve this or whatever will have them break down what happened right before that, when did you think that, what happened afterwards, and just sort of try to help people to be a little more effective. A lot of what you are kind of describing of like these parents who are not supportive, who are really negative, Probably the intervention and it is a type of CBT that has been most effective is dialectical behavioral therapy. And this approach really is especially effective for people who've had these like invalidating environments where your experience was not your experience. It was whatever version your parents believed it should be or where your parents were very emotional and reactive no matter what you did. You couldn't please them kind of thing or they were putting you down or, or whatever where they might not have actually been physically or sexually or abusive but like nothing that's going to involve a DCYF call, but still incredibly harmful. Dialectical behavioral therapy will help people to manage that emotion. So when you suddenly feel angry or overwhelmed or sad
1: or everything at once, how do you get through that moment? I'm going to give you a really specific example just because there was another podcast that I did with a therapist in Toronto. His name is Nicholas Mirage. So he talked about this on the podcast so I can discuss this. He talked about how, and I talked to him offline, and he said that his family, I mean, looking at the family, everyone it would appear as a normal, regular family. But he talked about how, because of some neglect by his parents and then some favoring of his sibling over him, basically because of how standoffish they were, his older brother was very abusive of him. That caused a lot of anxiety in him for a large part of his life, was concerned that really just he wasn't lovable and people wouldn't like him. And even though objectively he has a lot of friends in his life and a lot of people that care about him, he kept thinking, no one really likes me. And I think that's a common experience that many people have, where someone looking into their family situation, it would appear that they have this perfect upbringing and nothing could be wrong. However, Mm -hmm. they're suffering on the inside. And I'm also willing to bet many people have not heard about dialectic behavioral therapy. So if you could really get into what dialectic behavioral therapy is, because I think that example can be transferred to so many different people comment on how you would use dialectic behavioral therapy in that case, because specifics is, I think a lot more helpful than generalities.
0: So and in that case, the parents were not involved. I'm assuming they were like, just more standard therapy.
1: No, they weren't. I mean, they like they're not involved.
0: So they couldn't do family therapy kind of thing.
1: Let's just pretend that someone like that. It comes to mouth, and
0: they're an adult that and their awful. parents are not a part of the picture. Yeah.
1: Or they just really feel at this point in their life, they're not comfortable saying to their parents who on the surface, they have a very good relationship with, you know what, let's go to family therapy. Cause that's, I think a step or two above where they are at, but they mm-hmm. know that they have issues that they want dealt with. And the thing that I always tell people as well, the top football player, soccer player, whatever, they all have coaches and a psychologist is really a coach to help you in how you see your yeah. life. So it's a very appropriate thing. They're aware of these things. And then they're coming to you. And let's pretend this person is coming to you. They don't want to involve their family, but they're saying, this is what I grew up with. I have all these social anxieties because of where I was raised, but it's awkward discussing it because even though they feel that way, everyone else looking in would think you don't really have a lot to complain about.
0: Yeah. And I mean, and that could even be part of what that person's thinking is like, this is again, another piece of evidence of how worthless I am that I'm whining about something when I have, everybody knows that
1: I have an easy life. Exactly. What exactly is dialectic behavioral therapy Then, and then how would you apply it?
0: When we think about dialectical behavioral therapy, a component of that is this like classic cognitive behavioral therapy. What is that moment when the person, do I do a chain analysis? What is that moment when the person feels really horrible? What happened right before it? How did they feel in that moment? And then what happened afterwards? And I think this comes back to what I was saying earlier, which is that the real question is, does this impair you in some way. You're like, everybody feels sad sometimes. The question is, do you feel so sad that you can't get to work or that you're unable to be present and listen to the people you care about or that you're unable to enjoy your things that you used to enjoy? What's nice about kind of psychotherapy is that we can always come back to that thing that it affects. Ultimately, feeling horrible at yourself affects something. It means that you feel depressed and sad and down. It means, again, you're not wanting to like engage with people. And so you can target those thoughts. The thing that can be tricky is sometimes when you target those thoughts head on, most people who come, like the person you just described, is smart enough to know. It's like they quote unquote should feel differently. But it doesn't feel true to them. So you could get them to say out loud, Well, I know I should feel this way, or or you could even say to them, You're an incredibly productive person. You can see their face, but it doesn't feel true. They don't believe you. So part of what is lovely about things like um, kind of behavioral therapy and dialectical behavioral therapy is that there are other pathways to try and get it to feel real. When you look at dialectical behavioral therapy, for example, there's a really lovely attention to the affective component. So when you look at affect and emotion, it can kind of break it down into how both like distress tolerance. So when I'm upset in the moment, how do I get through that moment without cutting on myself, without hitting my partner, without sending off that mean email that I'm going to regret later on? How do I get through that really uncomfortable moment and survive it without harming my relationships? And then also this bigger picture of in general, how do I manage my emotions? How do I? understand my emotions. A lot of times what can happen is people feel sad and they just want to get rid of it. Being sad is normal. Everybody should feel sad sometimes. How do you figure out how to get through that moment of being sad and acknowledge it and be present with it and not run away from it? So, for example, with anxiety disorders, often what we see is that people who feel really, really anxious, they might feel sad or uncomfortable. Like I just had an interaction with someone where I feel like I might have hurt their feelings. And so now you feel bad, feel guilty, you feel uncomfortable. Then you get anxious about it. You start rerunning it in your brain over and over and over that inner interaction. And you start trying to figure out what you can do. And you talk to your friend, oh my gosh, I had this interaction and here's what happened. And then you can't fall asleep at night because you're laying there thinking about this interaction, what's going to happen next time. And like your brain is just spinning. So
1: wait, out of curiosity, how many people do you think get that? Like everything you just described, that whole, you say something to someone else, then you obsess about, like how common is that?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, this is the thing that I think is so important for everyone to realize is that when we talk about things like depression and anxiety, they are by definition really common and that parts of those experiences, even if they never hit this like diagnosis threshold, are common for everyone and in some parts of that can even be adaptive. For example, kind of a little bit of anxiety is part of what helps us to like meet deadlines or even that description I just had of like the social interaction with someone we're later on you thinking about it is part of what helps us to like adhere to social norms or be kind to other people. Like So some of that is okay. It's where, again, kind of coming back to that impairing issue, it's when that means I don't fall asleep when I need to go to sleep. If it means that people in my life are like, oh my God, I'm so tired of talking about this. Can you please stop talking about this? Or it's where I'm not able to then have a normal interaction with that person the next time I see them because I'm so in my head about what has happened. Does that make sense?
1: It does. That's the part that I'm having a little bit of trouble identifying with because I just don't do that. (laughs) My (laughs) wife does that, but I don't.
0: And it's more common for women. So this kind of pattern that I'm describing is much more common for women. So when we think about this being stuck in your brain, that is, um, we call that rumination. And the other thing that women do much more than men do is what's called co-rumination. So instead of just staying in their own brain and rerunning that and like trying to figure out how they can make it better, they'll do it with someone else too. So they'll like drag you into it. Like I had this interaction and then you go back and forth and there's this part of you that feels like you're doing something productive. Like I'm making it better. I'm fixing this bad thing that happened in the past, but actually you're just keeping it alive because you just keep going back and forth with other people or with, In your own brain about this bad thing that happened. And sometimes when we think about interventions for that process, dialectical behavioral therapy is incorporated what's called mindfulness. And some people will engage in just purely mindfulness interventions. So what exactly is mindfulness?
1: I'm still having some difficulty, based on what you're telling me, is differentiating between what's cognitive behavioral therapy, what's dialectic behavioral therapy, and what's mindfulness meditation. If you can somehow parse those out into what they are.
0: I mean, the history, like some of it, maybe it's helpful to give you the history. The history is that certainly we had like Freud and psychoanalysis, where people are just going to start talking about their parents and spend hours and hours and hours in therapy. Then over time, people became more interested in this idea that there could be behavioral pieces that we could target explicitly. We became really excited about learning theory. So you can change someone, believe it or not, you can actually, one of the most effective treatments for depression, for example, is purely just behavioral intervention, what's called behavioral Activation, which is that you just get up in the morning. Don't worry about how you feel. Don't worry about how the person's thinking. You just get them to show up to work, to do something fun at least a couple times a week, to do the things that like pay their bills, like just physically show up and pretend, sort of fake it till you make it. And we see that if you do that for a little while, the emotions improve and the cognitions improve as well. So you can kind of intervene wherever you want. And so then over time, um, researchers and clinicians adopted this model, this cognitive behavioral triad, thoughts, feelings, and emotions, and said, if we can just intervene in any one of these domains, we can make all of the domains better. And what's great about that too, is that then you can change over time. Some patients are just not thinking about it the way that you, especially like young kids, for example, I wouldn't really go after a lot of the cognitive stuff in a really young kid because they can't think about it that way. So you can have your pick and you can change it session to session. You can target any one of those things. Then people felt this was sort of not enough. So we knew that not everyone was benefiting from cognitive behavioral therapy. There came online a number of what are called third wave cognitive behavioral therapies. And dialectal behavioral therapy was one of them. There are a few others like acceptance and commitment therapy, But those interventions incorporated some of the like kind of mindfulness components that are out there in non-Western cultures. And part of their premise was that part of what we do, again, when we're worrying or when we're co-ruminating or talking to other people about our worries, we're always like avoiding something. We're always rushing. We're not being present in our lives. So the basic premise with mindfulness, which is one piece of dialectical behavioral therapy, is that you part of what can help us all to be happier, healthier, um, engaged in our, our social lives is to just purely be mindful. And there's this host of research that has looked at even just what if you just give someone mindfulness therapy. So
1: when, when you say mindful, what exactly does that mean? Because it's this term, yes. I think that it's very obvious to you because you're a psychologist, and you're very good at what you do, but for other people who are not psychologists who have never there's some people who have never even heard of the term. So if you can just be a little bit more clear specific. On. Yes. So
0: mindfulness, there's a really great book out there that if people want to learn a little bit about mindfulness, it's worth reading. It's uh by Cabot Zinn. And actually he has a couple of different books and has done a lot of like nice introductory self-help kinds of texts, but also a ton of research around the benefits of mindfulness and physical health outcomes. Like including pain and kind of cancer, lots of things that lots of people cope with, especially as they age. It's kind of one of his first books that I think is worth reading is called Wherever You Go, There You Are. It's a really nice book in that it kind of introduces this idea that being mindful does not have to be sitting in a Buddhist temple with your legs crisscrossed. It can be literally just taking a breath, noticing your breath. It can be just listening to everything around you. It can be being very aware of each step that you take. Inherent in mindfulness is this sort of lack of judgment. So I'm going to go for a mindful walk and I'm going to notice each step that I take. And all of a sudden my brain's going to start thinking again about that weird interaction I had and how bad I feel about it. And I'm just going to notice that thought and I'm going to return to my breath. It's like a leaf falling down. Just keep walking. And it's a way of kind of acknowledging and accepting our experiences and not letting them control every moment because every moment's a new moment. And the other benefit of mindfulness is that it, on the one hand, it hopefully, and research has shown this, it can help us with things like anxiety because it decreases our feeling of avoidance, but it also could help us experience the good stuff in a way that sometimes, especially with technology, we get distracted from.
1: We've talked about childhood trauma. We've talked about some of the negative things that happen as an adult. So let me know if I'm missing anything just so I can summarize. So the things that a parent can do for a child or someone can do for themselves as an adult would be to find a really good psychologist, psychiatrist, and use these techniques that you're discussing to deal with the trauma that they've gone through. How often do you think people have insight into them needing maybe a little bit of cognitive reframing?
0: I mean, I think that that is like variable across people. I would say that probably 25% of people really get themselves really well. Like they understand what is happening for themselves. They know, oh, I know this is why I'm avoiding completing this task or whatever it is. And then there's probably 50% of people who have kind of a, like they know some of their areas of growth, but they don't know them all. And then there's these 25% of people who just are completely oblivious. But I also think for most of us, there are blind spots. And I think that's again, where it's super helpful to, have a therapist because your family can point those out to you, <laughs> but they're biased and you don't want to hear them. And so when you hear it from a psychologist, it feels different. But I, I will say, you know, you think about, for example, a car accident, even though we would all agree car accident is something we want to avoid and potentially traumatic, only about 10% of people who are in a car accident, if that's only trauma, have things like post-traumatic stress disorder or depression related to that accident. I do think it's important to keep in mind that many, many, many people are resilient. And so having something bad happen doesn't necessarily mean that you need to see a psychologist. I mean, I definitely think that there's no quote unquote worst case scenario is you bring your child to a psychologist and the psychologist says, you know, your kid's doing really well. But I've had lots of cases where I'll meet with a kid, they're doing really well. And I'll say, now I'm a resource for you in the future. So if they have a hard time when they transition to high school, if they have a hard time with whatever that comes on down the road, now I'm here, now I'm not scary. And you can come back and see me again. But again, like there are lots of things that you as a parent or neighbor, can do to help kids that don't even have to get to that level of of finding a provider.
1: How would you recommend someone choose their psychologist? If you can explain, what's the difference between a psychologist and psychiatrist? Because then the words are all very similar, but they have slightly different meanings.
0: So let's imagine that you know your kid's struggling with any kind of mental health issue. So
1: there is a
0: psychiatrist, there are psychologists, there are social workers as well, and there are counselors. So there's lots of different providers out there who can help. The psychiatrist would be somebody that you're really going to more for if you feel like medication can be helpful. You know, Often, for example, if you have a child who has ADHD, your pediatrician will take care of the ADHD meds. But it might be that your kid is really struggling with ADHD and depression. And so then you maybe... We, bring your child to a psychiatrist. There are psychiatrists who offer some more psychological counseling as well, but it's less of their training because of the way that our billing system works. A lot of times it's just really hard for them. And because there's so few psychiatrists, it's really hard for them to fit a lot of that work, the like kind of cognitive behavioral therapy kind of work into their day-to-day practice. Whereas psychologists who are sort of PhD level, meaning that they've gotten their doctorate in philosophy, those folks will have gone through after their Bachelor's degree, they'll have gone through another four years of school, plus another couple of years of, of internship and then postdoctoral training. So they're very well trained, but really to just look at not the medication piece, but rather that, like things like I just described dialectical behavioral therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy. Actually, the reality is that social workers often also have training in some of those same things that PhD level psychologists have training in. And so you can also find a social worker, social worker, master's level social workers have two years after their bachelor's degree. So some of the reality of the difference between a psychologist versus a social worker is just the amount of experience that you have and the amount of training that you would have had before you start working with patients. So that is one difference. But then let's say you're really thinking to yourself, like, gosh, how do I make sense of like all of these different psychologists and social workers who are out there? One thing that I think can be helpful is a lot of our agencies, a lot of our professional organizations will provide resources. So you can search their website for somebody local who's trained in behavioral interventions or who's trained in work with uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, for example. So I've lived in a lot of different places in my life and I've had friends who say to me, oh, my child needs to see someone. How can you help me find someone in Ohio or in South Carolina? So then I'll guide them to look at things like the ABCT, which is Applied Behavioral and Cognitive Therapy, is one of the major CBT organizations. And they will have on their website, a list of local providers, you can search for local providers, and then you can trust that these are people who are knowledgeable and engaged in the basic, like most up-to-date cognitive behavioral therapy approaches, which is important. There certainly are people out there who are doing fringe stuff that
1: we don't know if it works. Dude, I'm not implying that these things don't work, but what are the things that people are doing right now that lack evidence as far as peer-reviewed, published, like it's been studied? Like People are doing it, it's just there isn't the evidence backing it.
0: The good news is a lot of the stuff that even three years ago, we didn't have evidence for, we're starting to get some good data for. So when I was in training, there wasn't a ton of literature looking at, for example, art therapy helping PTSD. We've actually started to find that it does help. Researchers are being able to demonstrate that things like art therapy really do kind of help in some ways that we didn't expect. Each major professional organization will have a list I am closest to the International Society for Traumatic Stress Studies and they just came out with their guidelines. Look, you could review their their guidelines in As a part of their guidelines, what they actually also do is review every single intervention that they've been able to find and they identify whether or not they believe this is effective, not effective, possibly harmful, and then they can tell you kind of group by group. good example is in the long, long time ago, not many people do this anymore, there was an older version of debriefing psychological debriefing. So after a trauma, what would happen is they would kind of gather everybody who experienced a trauma into a room after disaster or something and they would sort of go through this process of trying to have everybody talk about what they experienced and and do this kind of debriefing process. And what we actually found is that when people started to research whether or not it worked, we found that it wasn't helpful and it was harmful that people were more likely to have PTSD if, if they participated in debriefing than if they had sort of been left alone um, to heal on their own. I think the more that things get away from kind of that cognitive behavioral framework, I guess if it sounds out there, they should be cautious and then you can always again go back to like these different agencies to find out for your particular thing. I mean, there's a lot of, there have been people who've talked about like energy therapies where they're aligning your chakras or things like that and there's really not great research for that. There's no real evidence But there have also been some studies where people have said maybe the mechanism of action isn't what we thought it was, but maybe there is some piece of this intervention that is still valuable. An example is some of the animal therapies. like. I remember after Hurricane Katrina, someone brought in their horse and the horse was supposedly stamping in some way that was going to prevent PTSD or something. But there is a good literature around the idea that interacting with animals is associated with a ton of positive physical health and emotional health outcomes for people. And that may be related to just feeling connected. There have been people who've argued that, for example, spending time around horses forces you to be mindful because you have to be fully aware, not get trampled. I guess what I would say is that whatever it is that you are thinking about for your child, I would just go ahead and research it. Just Google it and see if it's got support. What I can confidently tell you is that for all of our major concerns, when we think about anxiety, depression, PTSD, OCD, we know what works. And that's the really great
1: news is that we actually can make things better. I think one of the things that... So just on that topic then, so we've talked in more generalities of, here's some general things that are pretty clear would cause an emotional disturbance in a child and some general things like depression, anxiety, high blood pressure, poor functional outcomes as an adult. But do you have any specific cases you can discuss? I mean, obviously being compliant with your patient confidentiality, things of here's like where someone would start and after using all the things that you talked about, here was the outcome and this is how well they did.
0: PTSD is part of my clinical work in the last couple of years has focused more on our refugee families. And some of them have, as you might expect, expected, have had horrible traumas that seem impossible for anyone to imagine.
1: But can you really highlight one specific story, though?
0: I'll not give you one, just for, again, for confidential reason, but I'll tell you a version of a story that is like kind of a compilation of people from lots of different places I've worked You know, often it'll be the case that families will come to me and they will say, this horrible thing happened. My child now can't sleep. They can't pay attention at school. They get really angry. They fight all the time. They're crying all the time. I think it might have to do with this horrible thing that happened. This grandmother was murdered in front of them. Then the really, really great news is that I know how to treat PTSD. Like when I hear that whole description, it sounds like all this stuff that's different, like maybe this kid's broken or damaged or maybe they have a behavior problem or whatever, but actually all of that could be tied back to PTSD and it's PTSD in the past. It's not my mom is beating me every day so I can deal with things that have happened in the past and that are no longer a current threat. You know, my first step when I work with families is to to kind of assess what happened, to give them hope and it's real hope because I can tell you it's been fun working with interpreters because they get a chance to... It's fun to watch their skepticism when they start working with me and then they see, you know, oh my gosh, these families benefited and I've had interpreters start like going and finding people in their community and bringing them to me because they're like, this can get better. Like, I think one thing that I think when you are living day in and day out with post-traumatic stress disorder, you don't always realize how each one of these things that feels so different that being irritable or being... feeling alone even when you're in a group of people or feeling emotionally numb or raw or easy startle, all of these things, feeling sad and hopeless and feeling worthless, all of these things are part of that PTSD and all of those things can be improved with treatment. We know how to do it. You know, It's a matter of talking with parents about what does that look like? I know that I can make this better and here's how we're going to make it better. For kids and for adults, there's some some commonalities that a part of it is learning some basic skills around coping, around identifying emotions, managing emotions, around kind of like how do I identify my thoughts, my feelings, how are they all connected, psychoeducation, that it wasn't your fault that this horrible thing happened. And then jumping into the part of it that can be a little bit of a conversation with people about. So a lot of times people feel like this whole horrible thing happened. Why would I ever talk about it again? I don't ever want to talk about this. And so part of my conversation with families will be like part of therapy actually is going to be talking about it. The way that I think about that is parents are afraid that you're going to re-injure their child. The reality is when you have post-traumatic stress disorder, it's like a wound that is just escaping open wound. We have to rinse it out so that we can heal it. I'll talk with families about that. If your child had gotten a piece of wood caught in their arm, you wouldn't say, well, they're going to be uncomfortable when I pull it out. You would pull it out. You would clean out the wound and you would dress it. You know, we talk about... you're kind of like a mental
1: surgeon then to cut out the trauma.
0: And we can't get rid of it. It's there. It's part of the story, but it's a part of the story. It's not the whole story. Actually, with little kids, we explicitly make it a story. So with like a little kid, we'll have a story where there's again, after I've taught them these skills, after I've taught the parent skills around how to manage, you know, their kids' emotions and behaviors. We will literally create a beginning. This is what life was like before, like a little picture book of like life before grandma was murdered, the middle, which is this is the experience I had of grandma being murdered. And then the end, which is after the person's safe, then we fled, we went and lived in a refugee camp and I still felt sad. And then I talked to Dr. Nugent and things got better. Kind of again, like contextualizing this, that this, we're not going to take that away. I wish it had never happened, but we can't take it away. And not talking about it isn't taking it away, but making sense of what the rest of the story looks like. And then the next piece is after kids have gotten through that process, doing that book, or for adults, it's just like a a written narrative or a verbal narrative. And then it's challenging those assumptions. So built into that book might be, it was my fault, or built into that narrative, it was my fault, or I had this reaction that somehow makes it my fault or makes me guilty. So then challenging that, helping the person to think differently about the things that have happened in the past. And even putting those words out there, like I had many times where because traumas are so secretive and feel so dirty, people will... Have these automatic thoughts that are more of a feeling than a thought. And once they put it in words, they realize that's not right. Like, I've been feeling this way, but that's not true. And kind of helping people to like see that, that part of it can be really, really powerful. I had a, someone once who literally when I took was me describing to her, she wouldn't speak. I, I started meeting with her. She had really severe PTSD and she was refusing to talk to anyone. I knew a little bit about her sexual abuse trauma. So I just started describing things that other people experience when they've had sexual abuse. And she just started sobbing and she said, I thought I was crazy. How old was she? She was 18. Mm -hmm. And she said, I thought I was crazy. I didn't know other people feel this way too. Like helping her to see that this is all... A part of this reaction to, to sexual assault was so powerful for her that in some ways, I actually think the most powerful therapy I did with her, even though I did the whole course I just described to you of therapy with her, I think the most powerful moment was that moment of basically psychoeducation of basically just kind of going like all this stuff, these nightmares, the inability to sleep, so like feeling on edge all the time, feeling like I can't trust people, feeling like I'm dirty, like all of this. This is not me like losing my sanity, being unable to like control myself. So that kind of those psychoeducation pieces can be very powerful, especially for post-traumatic stress disorder.
1: I totally agree with you.
0: So when we think about things like this, kind of all this whole long host of negative outcomes of adverse childhood experiences or trauma, a lot of times we think about post-traumatic stress disorder because that's kind of the obvious one, right? But actually suicide is another one. So people will feel so overwhelmed and hopeless that that they will sometimes think that they would wish they were dead or they were better off dead. I've talked to kids and young adults who've talked about really feeling like the best thing for their family would be to just die or even like there's just, there's no future. There's no reason to be around. It's just too much. And so trauma and negative past events can be a big part of it. And the other thing that we haven't really talked about that I think is really, really important is sleep for People with post traumatic stress disorder and depression and anxiety as well, people will lie awake 2 in the morning, 3 in the morning, 4 in the morning. They're wide awake. They're reliving it. They're trying to go to sleep. And then they finally maybe fall asleep. And then they wake up remembering it. And then you have to try to function the next day. And so a lot of people with who are really struggling the most are these people who they're not, you know, you can't think clearly. You can't handle your emotions clearly when you're completely sleep deprived. And so what will happen is people will just kind of hit this point of emotional and mental exhaustion. And so, you know, things that you can do in terms of being a loved one or a friend, you know, if you notice that somebody seems like they're struggling, it is kind of coming back to what I said before about the parent who's being pushing their kid too hard. You just, we all need to ask. It's okay to ask. And I found over and over that when I have asked a kid, they're relieved. And I can't tell you how many times kids have said to me, like, I'm sure my mom knows. I actually just happened to be in the clinic. My pediatrician colleague said to me, oh, why don't you just pop in and say hi to this family? Um, I'm worried about one of the younger siblings. And the sibling that nobody was worried about, I asked him if he had ever thought about hurting himself. And it turned out that he had not only thought about it, he'd made a past attempt to kill himself. And he was thinking about another one. No one knew. And when I asked him about it, I said, do you think that she knows? Do you think she suspects? And he's like, yes, she definitely knows because I spent a lot of time by myself in my room. And so I meet with mom and mom is completely shocked. And she said, I just thought that's what teenage boys do. <laughs> and you can't blame her, right? Like he thought he was being so clear, but But he was excelling academically, he was engaged in sports, he was a great sibling, he a wonderful son. He felt like, how do they not see how much pain I'm in? And nobody asked. And the mom, why would she ask, right? Because she's thinking, well, do you have trauma
1: or did he just have?
0: He did have trauma, but I think in his case, he definitely had trauma.
1: Is it anything you can share?
0: Probably not, but I will say that there are kids who. Or what I'm looking for is like examples. Yeah,
1: like examples of here are some some things that kids might be suffering from, and the parents are just not going to catch it.
0: Right. It could be a classmate who is making fun of them and or it could be a teacher or it could be physical assault or sexual assault. It could be things like just feeling like you can't achieve academically. Usually when kids are really, really to the point where they want to kill themselves, it typically it goes beyond just like a a bad test grade kind of thing. But I've certainly had kids who kind of a bad test grade layered on top of a history of physical and sexual abuse or on top of cyberbullying and critical parents who've thought about killing themselves. So I think, again, it just comes back to just ask, just ask your kid, how are they doing? And you can start habits when kids are really little that can be a great way to then continue to have those conversations as they grow up. The kid comes home from school and they'll say, how was school today? Well, the kids often say, I don't know, it's fine. But you can structure that. So you can say, tell me something good that happened today. Tell me something that you were disappointed by or that made you sad. And to give them like a framework for telling you specific things that if you didn't ask in that way, you might never know the answer to.
1: I think that's fantastic advice. Any closing thoughts that you have on, and Dr. Nugent, I really appreciate you taking the time to to come on the podcast and share all of your information, but any closing thoughts that you really want to get across as the thought to conclude this podcast?
0: I think the biggest thing that I, in my clinical work and my research and my teaching, always come back to when we think about how can we help promote people being resilient to stress and trauma is... Social relationships. To some degree, it always comes back to having someone in your life that, that cares enough to ask and that all of us can come in upon all of us to be that person, to be that parent, to be that friend, to be that colleague who just creates a space. And it's okay. Listen to the answer. If the person says, oh, I don't want to talk about it, don't push it on them. <laughs> But to be open. And then depending on what that person says, maybe they need to see a psychologist and that's okay. There's nothing wrong. The difference between a life coach and a psychologist is training. And I mean, I think that most people wish they had the money for a professional life coach all the time with them. Think about a psychologist that way. It's not such a bad thing.
1: I think that's a great way to reframe it. But I think there definitely is. I would 100% agree with you. In in my clinical practice, I've seen dramatic improvement in people once they have a variety of issues, I guess, addressed and appropriately taken care of. I will also say there's a large difference between psychologists and in all fields. There's some people that are very, very good at what they do. And there's some people that are not as great at what they do, which is
0: the nature of all I think that's true. And I think whenever I refer someone to see a psychologist or whenever I talk with my families about it, psychology, finding a therapist is very personal. And so if you don't like your therapist, it is okay. (laughs) Find a new one. I think what I always worry about is that someone will go into therapy. They put all this energy in. Getting to that first appointment is so hard. After that, it's easier (laughs) because you meet the person and you kind of have a sense of what to do. But that first appointment, it takes a lot of courage to walk in that door. And then if you walk in that door and that person's not a good fit for you, it's easy to then say, oh, just psychology doesn't work for me. I'm just going to not see anyone. But I would say if you you know, go in that door, find out if that person's a good fit. And if they're not, that is okay. Find a new person. And I think that it's easier said than done, especially because unfortunately, these days we don't have the mental health services that we need. There's much more need than there are providers right now. But but don't give up because you can improve. And so
1: and if you live in a small you know, town, there are telepsychology services available that access as well. Because I know there are a lot absolutely. of people in little tiny towns or in other parts of the world that they just don't have the access to a very good psychologist. If you're listening to this podcast, clearly you have the internet. So use that as a resource. <laughs>
0: Absolutely. And people in small towns might also feel uncomfortable with the the psychologist, the next door neighbor or their child's mom. Again, that's where I think things like telepsychiatry and telepsychology are helpful.
1: I 100% agree. Just for everyone listening, we'll include all of Dr. Nugent's, any social media. Actually, before I conclude, are there ways that you want people to get in touch with you? Do you want people to get in touch with you?
0: (laughs) Yeah, people are welcome to contact me through email. So it's Nicole, N-I-C-O-L-E, underscore Nugent, N-U-G-E-N-T, at brown.edu. People are welcome to contact me. Also through, as you said, social media is fine as well. I have a Twitter account that people could be welcome to try to contact me through. I'm probably better when it comes a real email using email than the like messenger thing on twitter but either are people are welcome either way
1: fantastic and also just we're also going to post our cv because it's a very impressive cv oh thank you (laughs) very much
0: all right you take care
1: thank you for listening
0: if you enjoyed this podcast please subscribe and visit the get healthy 360 facebook page we are always looking for feedback and new story ideas thanks again and see you next time